Go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to talk this evening about the beginning of theology, and afterwards we'll have our, our discussion time and questions if you have them or, or whatnot, and we'll pray. Um, so be thinking about that as we go. John 1, we're going to read 1 through 18 and pray and we'll get to work. John 1, these are the words, these are the words of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were with his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Let's pray. Our Father and our gracious God, we are thankful today that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We rejoice and praise you for your divine wisdom and divine plan to, to rescue us from sin and to grant us light and salvation. We ask and pray that your Spirit would enlighten us and drive us towards a greater obedience to King Jesus. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so we begin tonight a new series in the Gospel of John, and we're going to start with the prologue to John's Gospel narrative, which is the beginning of theology. Now, as a quick side, theology is a word that comes from two compound Greek words. The first is theos, which is the Greek word for God, and the other is logos, the Greek word for word. So thus, theology literally just means the Word of God. Um, we'll, I'll explain some of that later as we go. John's story is absolutely unique in the entire Bible, especially the New Testament, because John is noticeably different from the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic just means they're seen the same. The synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's very much different than them. And the reason is because John has an axe to grind. According to John 20, verse 31, John, the brother of James, this is the son of Zebdi, he's the author here, he wants you and I to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's why he's writing. He tells us at the very end. 
Um, I'm writing these things so that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that, that you will be, believe that he is, in fact, the Son of God. Now, why? Why does it matter that we believe in Jesus? Well, he tells us again in the same verse, because when we believe, we have life in his name. When we believe in Jesus, we have life in his name. Now, interestingly enough, in the Gospel of John, a little fun fact for you this evening, the, the, the noun for belief and the noun for faith in the Greek language is nowhere in the Gospel account. The noun is nowhere to be found. And the reason is, is because the verb takes central stage. The verb is to believe. It's an action. John's not interested in just, you know, pie-in-the-sky theology. We are to believe in Christ. We are to believe on him, to trust him. We are to actively and continually and persistently place the entirety of our hope and confidence in Christ. That's what we are supposed to do. See, faith... Faith means that we are to put our lives on the line, to place every square inch of our life in the Lord's sovereign hands because every square inch of life is already in his possession. So faith isn't this abstract thing we, we study and it's just a, a noun that's out there floating around. Faith is an action. It's a believing is a, a thing that we do constantly. So we're to put our lives on the line for the kingdom of God, to place every square inch of life in his hands because he already has it in his possession anyway. Now, I wanted to do this series. It's kind of um, growing in, up in Michigan. One thing that we would do, since it's snowing here, one thing I would do is take my car into the back roads and have some fun. And my very first car was an old, like I don't remember what year it was. It was like an 89 Buick. And it had a V8 engine, so it had some get-up. And I remember um, you, you, you go backwards down the dirt road, and then you just you know, yank the wheel really hard, and you'll fly around, and then you put it in drive, and, and you go. And it's fun. That's what we do in Michigan when it's snowing. <laughs> John can attest. Um, so I feel like we're yanking the wheel a little bit tonight. And the reason is because we just spent 10 weeks on humanism, and it was very heavy. Um, and now we're sort of like kind of landing the plane, if you will. And the reason I, I wanted to do this is because I, I'm convinced that Christian reconstruction at its foundational level is rooted in the fact that Christianity is a creedal faith. It's a creedal faith, right? It's, it's not a faith that's, you know, our, about our emotional experiences, though we do have emotions. It's not like um, that, that our faith is just this historical set of circumstances, though history, we believe, is guided by the sovereignty of God, no doubt, in God's predestination. But our faith is creedal. Our faith is, is a creedal faith. It's doctrinal. We confess certain truths, and we stand upon truth, and, and truth isn't this objective thing that we don't tinker with. We adhere to it. So the gospel of the kingdom is ethical. It's rooted in the Latin word credo, which means I believe. Um, you, a lot of the confessions, the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, right? I believe, I believe, we believe. We believe X, we believe Y, we believe Z, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and so on and so forth. So the Christian faith is a creedal faith. We believe certain things. Now, because of Christ's redemption, and because whatever is not of faith is sin, 
we therefore are brought into this, what we call the ecclesia, right? The church of God, the assembly of God. And we are thus fashioned into a creedal culture. So this is a creedal culture. Um, we do certain things because we believe certain things. We gather like this because we are convinced that it's an important thing to our faith. We partake of communion and we fellowship with meals together regularly. That is an aspect of our faith. We're doing things because we believe things. So that, that's how it always works. And it's either you believe the right things and then do the right things, or you believe the wrong things and then you do the wrong things. That's basic Christianity. So we're fashioned into a creedal culture. We are defined by what we believe. We are not defined by our genes. That's with a G, not a J, though the other is true as well. But our genes, our blood, or our family, we are not defined primarily by our environment. All right? That's what's somewhat dangerous about getting into humanistic psychology with your upbringing. Yes, your world is shaped, but your environment needs to be dictated and understood by, by the creeds, by Christ. So we're not shaped by those things. We're not shaped um, ultimately by things like our circumstances. Faith defines everything. Faith defines everything for us. Rush, Rush Dooney called it this biblical creedalism, which is our quote, he says, assent to God's creation, redemption, and government, end quote. That's what biblical creedalism is. Biblical faith is an ascent. It's an ascent to God's creation. It's an ascent to his redemption. We agree with it. We um, believe in it. We love it. And we adore it, as we sang earlier. So we confess that in Christ, we are brought under God's law. We are brought under God's law, God's government. And now we move and we act in terms of our confession of faith. So we've come to Christ because Christ came to us, the Christmas story, right? So we move and we act in terms of our confession of faith. So that's why we need to study the Gospels. This is why we need to know who Jesus Christ is, to behold him, to rest in him, to labor on his terms. That's why this is sort of like the, the, the yank in the wheel. Ten weeks on humanism and that's good and great, and we need that. We need to be able to spot it, identify it, destroy it. But none of that's anything if we, if we don't have some of these things down. And, 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 I, and I'm, sad, I'm saddened to some degree because in our, in our circles, usually there's sort of this hurrah, hurrah, you know, and that's good, but piety is important. We need to know who Christ is. We need to be in prayer. We need to be in his word. We need those things. Those are foundational things. We don't, we don't, maturity isn't, you don't have to read your Bible anymore. <laughs> maturity isn't, oh, well, I only have to pray before meals. That's not maturity. Maturity, arguably, would be more of that. More of that. So that's why I really chose the Gospel of John, because that's really John's whole purpose, to lay the foundation. Cross and crown church must move in terms of Jesus Christ, which means that we have to know him, we must know him, and actively believe in his lordship. So let's just work through the text here in a second. I'm going to give you just a, a, a couple words, though, before that. This is the prologue 
This is John's prologue. John's prologue is a collision of time. It's a place where the past and the future collide in the present. It reaches all the way back to the very beginning, brings us forward into the present, and even foreshadows things which were to come for the life of Jesus, as we'll see. See, the prologue is really the gospel of the kingdom in miniature. That's what it is. The whole gospel story is here in the first 18 verses of, of John's gospel. Before he gets on you know, to explaining the life of Jesus, which is in, usually in the synoptics, it's done by talking about the birth story of Christ. Usually they get to that first, right? The genealogy is there, the birth story is there. Instead, John goes back further. John has a Christmas story, and, and he's just saying it differently. He's sharing it in a different way. So there's no, there's no baby in a manger uh, there's, there are no wise men. There's no explanation about Mary through the virgin birth, though the virgin birth I, I see in this text, and I'll show you later. We don't have the enthusiastic drama surrounding the birth of Christ. John's Christmas story is different. And John goes to the very beginning where it all began, where everything is, has started in Christ, which is another way of saying the gospel of the kingdom starts from the very dawn of creation. So look at our text. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning. Genesis, Genesis 1 starts, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. Here we have a different phrase. In the beginning was the Word. Uh, the, the word beginning is arche in Greek. It, um, he says, anarche in halagos. In the beginning was the Word. So we have the beginning God created, and the beginning was the Word. Clearly, John's wanting us to think about Genesis here. We're supposed to think of the creation story. And I'll say this, too, as we go along in this. I don't know how many weeks we'll take. We'll see. <laughs> we'll just roll with it. Um, but you really need to know the Old Testament to understand John, because he's going to foreshadow everything from the temple to the tabernacle to the lampstand to all the furniture in the tabernacle. There's a whole lot of symbolism in it, and he's using it to prove a point. So what's clear from the outset is this. The Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word who we are going to encounter in this story. Think about reading this for the first time. This Word is unique. The when of the Word is in the beginning. The where. Where's the Word? He was with God. And who was the Word? Well, he's God. He's God. N not a God. Uh, that's, whenever you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, that's one of the places I like to go because their translation puts a definite article. There is no definite article in the Greek. It's, it's, um, it's the, or the opposite, actually. There's not a God. It's the word was God. That's all that's, that's there. This story is not about a nice man that we should probably esteem. This story is not about a person who did some great things that we should appreciate and maybe gawk at from a distance. John wants you and I to know that this person is very God and very man. Truly God and he's truly man. He's the word. He's the incarnate son of God. He is from the beginning of space and time. Indeed, he transcends space and time. Look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God, verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Lest we think Jesus was created, 
John tells us, no, 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 no. Everything that exists was because of him. He's the creator. Though his name is not yet used, that part is coming. Because Think about reading this for the first time. Who is this word? We don't know yet. We know it's Jesus, though. He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. The Christmas story in John's eyes is about Jesus Christ, who is ushering in a new creation. Yes, he's the word. He's the speech of God. John Calvin translated it, the speech of God. He's the speech. He's the creator. He's also the recreator. He's the author of the original heavens and the earth, right? He's now the cause of the second version, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, Jewish scholars, like even Philo, who is a contemporary of Christ, would say things like, the word, this logos, who is the logos? Who is the word? Well, he's, he's, it's wisdom. He's the wisdom of God, and wisdom was with God from the beginning, which is true. Proverbs 8 talks about wisdom being with God from the beginning. But he's not merely wisdom, as if we can reduce the Son of God down to you know, one attribute of God. He's the speech of God. He's the very word that spoke all things into existence. Now, in Greek thought, the word was this divine principle of rationalization and logic. It was sort of this, well, here's what I'm calling it, this personalized, impersonal thing. <laughs> this sort of concept that's out there. That's what the Greek thought, that's what they would, have, they would have believed. But in John's mind, however, the word is the speech of God, this self-conscious person of the Trinity, the divine Trinity. In other words, when God thinks, he thinks. When God thinks, the word thinks. When, when God speaks, who does God speak through? The word, the speech. This is the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. This eternal Son is the Word. He's the eternal Logos of God. This Word spoke everything in, into existence out of nothing, ex nihilo. He's the great I Am, God from the beginning. Jesus was not a created God, like some of the cults would teach. He is God. Literally, in the Greek, uh, He is toward God. When it says in, in verse 1 that He was with God, that word, proston um, theon, he's toward God, he's facing God, he is, he is God, he's in the divine counsel of the Godhead. He was before all creation because all creation comes into existence because of the agency of the word. This, this topic of ontology, you probably, it's, we talk about that a lot sometimes in, in our circles, but ontology is this idea of the nature of being. What is something in its being? Well, ontology exists in creation because ontology comes from God. God is a being. He simply is. God exists, therefore we exist. Because he is I am, therefore we are. Things have their being because the word of God gave them being. This is what we could call divine imputation. God gives meaning. God gives purpose. God grants those things to creation by the means and the agency of the creator word. Look at verse 4 and 5. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. See, creation was through the means of the word of God. But notice something different. Did you catch it here in the text? Creation is through the word. Life is in the word. 
Creation came through the word. Life now is in the word. Creation through life in. If you create, there's life there. There's a connection. Jesus will later tell us, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Right? Life and light are connected the same way death and darkness are connected. Life is light. Light is life. As creator, God has made all men and women in his image. He's given light to man. See, as image bearers, we exercise things. We exercise knowledge and compassion and righteousness and holiness and dominion. We exercise grace towards one another. We exercise mercy. We exercise law-keeping. This life we have is, in fact, light. And listen, all men possess it to some degree. Now, Calvinism, we sort of like, you know, total depravity, everything's terrible, and we're all going to die. Like, it's just this bleak outlook. But being made in the image of God, men have light in them. John's not obfuscating here. He's pretty, pretty straightforward. In him was the life of, of men. Men made in the image of God have a light in them. A faint one, sort of a candle flickering in the distance, but a light nonetheless. They're a reflection of God. This also means something important. Only in Christ, then, do we have meaning. Only in Christ do we have meaning. How many people are trying to find meaning apart from Christ? All, everyone who doesn't have Christ, right? But only meaning, and only meaning comes from Christ. Only in the word does life and light flourish. Darkness has no meaning in and of itself. It can't. It's purposeless. It, it can grow darker and darker. That's what darkness wants. That's what it's meant to do. But verse 5 says that the light keeps shining. Okay, there's, I want you to know this too. There's a present tense verb in this action. It means the darkness, like it keeps shining. It's a constant shining. The light is always going. It's always going strong. He is, as Malachi says, right, the son of righteousness. S-U-N. The sun is the sun. <laughs> the S-O-N is the S-U-N. He's the son of righteousness. See, <coughs> darkness can't comprehend the light. It doesn't comprehend the light. Darkness and the fallen men contained therein could not and cannot understand the word. Now, the word here in the original language, it, it can mean apprehend and comprehend. It's that idea that darkness doesn't understand light. It doesn't even have a category for it. it it's so distant from light, it doesn't understand it. It can't comprehend it. Um, death doesn't understand life. The only thing death knows is death. The only thing light knows is light. The only thing darkness knows is darkness. And that's the way God designed it. So put it in terms of man. Fallen men, fallen sinners do not understand or possess the word. They don't. There's a flicker, as we said, in the image, but they don't have it. They can't understand it. They can't comprehend it. That's why you need to be reformed, <laughs> because... God makes you understand it, because you can't, right? Dead people insist on a gift. Look, dead people don't wake themselves up to receive a free gift. It doesn't matter how free it is. They don't wake themselves up to take it. They have to have the word. They have to have the light. They have to have life. See, light cannot be put out. The light of Christ cannot be put out. It burns forevermore. Why? Because it's only found in the word of God. Jesus is going to later tell us several times in John's gospel that he's the light of the world. 
Now that has a lot of imagery, especially when you think of the lampstand in the tabernacle, right? In the holy place, not the holy of holies. He's the light. He's the one that grants us understanding in life. See, one thing this text foreshadows for us is the death and resurrection of Christ. Darkness and death marked the crucifixion of our Lord. That Friday afternoon, darkness thought it had apprehended the light, right? Darkness thought Satan and sin and death thought that they had captured the light, that they had apprehended the light and they had snuffed it out. But on Resurrection Sunday, the light proved to be ever-powerful. Light always wins. John's planting seeds for us as we study his word, his, his gospel account. Look at verse 6, 7, and 8. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Next week, we'll talk more about John the forerunner, John the Presbyterian, Everybody calls him the Baptist. I'm kind of partial to that. I prefer John the forerunner. <laughs> but just note that the incarnation of the word requires the assistance of man. We don't need to be ashamed of that. Now, that, that doesn't mean that man gives the incarnate word permission and we tell him what to do. No, the incarnation of the word enlists men to carry out the mission. Why, why this? There came a man sent from, from God whose name was John. Where was he sent from? God. God sends us. And we'll talk about that later. That's a theme that will show up um, after the resurrection. So John, and remember, this is not John the writer. John, the son of Zebdee, he's the writer. This is John, the forerunner, usually called Baptist. And in verse 4, he's a witness. He comes to testify about the light. Why does he testify? So people would believe. See, we have this divine appointment for gospel preaching. And gospel preaching doesn't just happen here. It happens in your homes, right? It happens at your job. It happens at the abortion mill. It happens in all places. And that's because we have been given a task as God's messengers to give witness to the light. But notice in verse 8, John was not the light. John was a lamp. The word there is a lamp. He's a lamp that contains and emanates and radiates the light of God but John is the one pointing to the actual light. John is just the human vessel, the human witness, the forerunner who paves the way for the light. Look at verses 9 to 13. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. I like the NASB for this reason because, and they'll even know a lot of times words that are in sort of the, the present form of it. The true light which coming into the world, it comes into the world, it's always coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who are believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, the word... The word is the light, and the light gives testimony to his continual and ongoing enlightenment of all men. In other words, God, God is always staring in the face. He's staring man in the face all the time at every turn throughout creation and through the witnesses of Christ in the gospel message. And what does man do? He turns his back. 
I think Van Til, if I recall correctly, used this. Um, the illustration is this dates him, but like of a radio, an AM FM radio. And man tries to turn the channel, but it, it's always God. <laughs> he tries to change the station, but it's always God. It's that idea. God is always there. He's always staring us in the face. That's because he is the light. The word is the light. Men and women made in his image cannot escape this. You cannot escape it. See, the truth of the word is an inescapable concept. It's inescapable. How so? We'll look at verse 10. It says that he was in the world, right? He was in the world. The world he created out of nothing. And being in the world he made, the world, ironically, didn't know him. If Jesus had come with the full radiance of his glory, what would happen to man? Be crushed. <laughs> we would die. His holiness would absolutely crush us. But what does Paul say in Philippians? He, he laid aside that glory. He sort of concealed it in the vessel of a young Jewish man who was nothing to look at. Wasn't, right? That's what the prophecies tell us. He wasn't this, you know, famous, well-to-do man. He was poor. And he dwelt among us. That's the light. That's the light of the world. He came into the world. The world didn't know him. They, they wanted, they didn't want to look at the author of the universe and look him in his, in his eyes. They didn't want that. They turned away. He came to his own, verse 11 says, his own human race, and man rejected him. But not all men rejected him. Many, the text says, received him. They actively believed on him. And those who looked him in the eyes by faith, he brought them into this divine inheritance. They were adopted. They were brought into the family. They became children of God. This is a matter of rejoicing. Those who believed became his. Verse 13 is, is part of the Christmas story. I want you to see this, so make sure you're looking at it. Verse 13, this is John's Christmas story, and this is all you're going to get because he's got other things to get to. This is not, when he's talking about um, those who believe who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, this isn't just a text about man being reborn. I also see it as a text about Christ's birth. He wasn't born into the world by traditional means of blood, right? He was born of the virgin. He had no earthly father. He was conceived in his mother's womb by the Holy Spirit. He wasn't born of the will of flesh or the will of man. He was born because of the will of God. So those of us who are in Christ, that's our story too, right? That's the same story. We are born again in Christ by the will of God. That's regeneration, and we'll see that again in John chapter 3. John finishes up his prologue hymn. We'll call it a prologue hymn. It was probably an early hymn. The Christians would have memorized this, probably. He brings it all together. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified... He testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. 
For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. This word tabernacled among us. That's the literal translation. He tabernacled among us. We saw, notice John starts saying we here. We saw the Shekinah glory wrapped up in this man. We saw him. The, the glory that can only come from the Father who is full of grace and truth. We saw him. We saw the glory that had filled the temple, that had filled the tabernacle, that had descended on Mount Sinai in the clouds. We saw that wrapped up in a young Jewish man who walked on this planet. He tabernacled among us. God took up residence among us here. As much as I can't stand the message translation, there is a great little line from it, this verse, about Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Kind of funny, kind of modernized, but it's true. It's true. See, John the forerunner testifies about him. John was born six months before to his mother Elizabeth. Um, he was born six months before Jesus was born. They were cousins. So John technically is older. He's older. So he, he, he ranks higher, right? Well, no. John says, no, the word's of a higher rank because the word was from the beginning. He who comes after me, he who comes after me is higher than me, for he existed before me. The word is higher because the word is from the beginning. Listen, those who believed have received this grace upon grace, grace piled up on top of a pile of grace piles. That's the image. Grace upon grace, grace on top of piles of more piles and piles of grace. That is the beauty of the gospel. Just overkill. Grace upon grace. See, the grace of the law, he says, in verse 17, was given through Moses. This is not a derogatory comment here. I, 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 I can hear some of my dispensationalist friends read it this way. Well, for the law, that was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. This is an emphatic section. The law, the glorious law, that was given through Moses. And then add to that the greater grace, the greater truth brought to us by Jesus Christ. We have a name finally. The word has a name. We meet him finally for the first time. His name is Jesus Christ. See, the word is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the word. No one has seen God, but we have seen him in fact, the word here at the very end, it says he has explained him. It's a good word you should underline if you write in your Bible, but he's explained him. That word explained is where we get the word exegete or exegesis. In other words, Jesus Christ exegetes God. Fascinating. He exegetes God. Jesus is the autobiography of God. He's not the biography of God. He's the autobiography of God because he is God, right? Jesus is, we can say, he's the self-interpretation. He's the self-explanation of God. So God, the only son, right? Begotten God, he's the only son. He exegetes, he pulls out the meaning of God and he piles it on us. 
See, when we see Jesus, we see God. That's the great prologue of the prologue hymn of John 1 through 18. So what do we do with that, right? You should be now thinking, okay, so what? Well, here's so what. How, how does this help us on our journey with Christ? Well, to begin, we need to know that our lives have to be ordered in terms of the triune God. We need to know. We need to know that our lives, if belief, if, if John's writing so we will believe, if that's true, then we need to know from the very outset that our lives, the entirety of our lives, must be ordered in terms of the triune God. Listen, John is not interested in you agreeing with certain propositions. He's not, interest, he's not interested in that. He, what John is compelled by, he's interested in you having this total faith, a comprehensive faith, the type of faith that puts your life in the hands of this word light. And the reason it should be in the hands of this word light is because that's the only way you have life. Later, he'll say uh, about giving you life and life abundant. You know, that's sort of hijacked by the, the, the charismatics who, you know, sort of, well, they do some fun things with it, I guess we could say. But life is this fullness of grace. And so we ha John wants you to know that. That's the type of faith you need to have. So we are to be the type of people who not only confess the creed, we live and breathe the creed. We don't just confess these things, right? That's when it get, you get the sort of stale Christianity. We don't just confess. Our lives, we, we breathe it. We are constantly... In, in living and seeking in terms of it. We, we live and breathe the creed. The ordering of our lives has to be in terms of the triune God. Now, this isn't simply about having right doctrine, as essential and good and true as that is. This is about faith, belief. This is about the faith to build your life on this doctrine. See, the great problem that perplexes all of us, and I think all of you would agree with me here, the great problem that perplexes all of us is this problem of inconsistency. All of us in this room have inconsistent lives, every single one of us. We just do. We are not fully sanctified, and we have a long way to go. <laughs> so when we do not build our lives on the word light, we allow these vestiges of darkness to permeate our lives. When we're not focused on Christ, what happens? We, darkness gets in. Not that the darkness can overcome you. It didn't overcome Christ, and you're in him, so it's not going to overcome you. But it might tempt you. It, it might be appealing to walk a path you shouldn't walk. See, we, we may, for example, we may understand the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, and we'll get riled up about it. But we may lack basic etiquette and consideration of others, right? That could be a thing. We, we may well have a fully orbed Christology when, by which we can, we can take down the cults and their heretical beliefs. We're just, we just love it when they come to our door. I do. <laughs> and because it's like, all right, let's get our priests up on and take care of business. We love that. But... Can we tie our shoes? <laughs> can, 
Can we serve the person next to us? Can we mean what we say and say what we mean? Can we, can we follow through with our commitments by letting our yes be yes and our no be no? Can, can we parent, listen parents, can we parent in and through and by God's grace or are we going to do in and through our own impatience? Like those are the practical things, right? See, in, in all of our thinking and all of our moving and all of our doing and feeling, all of it, is grounded in the fact that theology, capital T, that is the word of God, a person, was from the beginning. He comes into the world and he explains, he exegetes the unseen God to us. So that's where everything starts. That's the beginning of it all. For Christians, theology isn't just a thing to be studied, it's a person to behold. It's not just a topic that we should study. It's a person that we should cling to, a person that we should behold every single day, every single moment. Jesus Christ came to the earth. He came to the earth because the earth is the object of his salvation and redemption. That's why he came. Had Jesus desired for us to just be whisked away to heaven, he could have done just that. But no, he came. He, he ate our food and he spoke our language. Um, it's all his though, right? Not that it's ours. And this is all because Jesus wasn't simply coming to save a people and then take them out. He came to save a people, establish those people as his militia, his battalion in the world for the glory of God. Listen, Jesus Christ exegetes and explains God to us, so it follows that we are to exegete Christ and explain Christ to the world. That's what it means to disciple nations. This isn't just a mere evangelist, evangelism task, though evangelism is good and should be, you know, that's the mark of a healthy Christian. We should always be talking about Jesus with whomever we can in whatever place we can. But just as Christ exegetes God to us, so we are to exegete Christ to the world. But how did we respond? That's the question. How did we respond? Well, we killed theology incarnate. That was our response, right? We killed the word. In our sin, we turned away, turned away, and we put him on a cross. We sided with darkness. That was our choice. In Adam, that was the decision that we made. We chose darkness. That's what we wanted. And I see John's gospel, by the way, as a prequel to the book of Revelation. It's a prequel to the book of Revelation because it's a covenant lawsuit in Revelation. But there's, there's hope, though, that's given first. The premise of this book is evangelistic. It's meant to point out the why. Why did Jesus come? And he tells us, why did those who, who he came to reject him? Why was he rejected? And the answer is simple, because we preferred our sin. That's what we preferred. Before the hammer comes down in judgment and revelation, the Gospel of John explains kind of what's just going on at a foundational level. We preferred our sin instead of Christ who came to make God known to us. See, John 3.19 says this, And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. John's telling you everything in the first 18 verses that he's going to tell you in the next 20 chapters. We killed theology, the word of God. That's what we did. 
But this was not the final word. Dear Christian, darkness cannot apprehend or comprehend the light. The word becoming flesh and tabernacling, tabernacling among us was God saying once again, let there be light. In a very real sense, in very true sense, this was the act of a new creation. This was God saying it all over again from the very beginning. Let there be light. And this is the light that has come into the world. And the light has always been the word of God. That's why this is the beginning of theology here. That's why I called it that. It all starts here. In one sense, John means that the word always existed and the word brought everything into existence. But in another sense, not, not only is the word from the beginning, all of our theological construct is from the beginning. It's from him. It's the same thing. It begins with God. You see, the gospel of the kingdom is God's task of rehumanizing the planet. That's what the gospel does. It rehumanizes the planet. Yes, Jesus came to his own. We know that. His own rejected him. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that this rejection became the very thing that saves us. Right? The, the empty tomb is God's grand reversal of everything. Darkness thought it had apprehended the light, thought it had comprehended the light, thought it had snuffed out the light. But the empty tomb proved something else. This rejection led to Christ's resurrection, and Christ's resurrection then led to his ascension to the Father. And notice in verse 18, John put, sneaks in this little statement here. The last verse of the prologue tells us that Jesus, where is he? He's in the bosom of the Father. That's the ascension of Christ. He's telling you the gospel story. The ascension of Christ is just as integral to the gospel as the cross and resurrection. It all goes together. See, the entirety of the gospel is here in 18 verses. The beginning of theology, it starts here. So what do we need to do? We need to behold this truth, dear friends. Behold it. We must insist upon building the entirety of our lives on its truth. To, to absurdly reject Christ is to walk the path of blindness, to walk the path of darkness. We, we shouldn't be apt to want to rely on our own thinking and our own ideas, our own emotions, which can easily inexorably be manipulated depending on the circumstances. We should embark on a life, build our lives on a life that is totally dependent on God's self-revelation of himself in Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for stooping low in the person of your Son. We are eternally grateful that the Word of God, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us and dwelt within us. He came to seek and save the lost, and no, no doubt that was us. Father, we, we ask and pray that your Spirit would guide us and direct us, move us towards a greater faith and obedience to your law word. Would, would we trust in the word light over against ourselves and our own intuition? Would we each grow and mature and exhibit the fruit of the Spirit so that we can be about the business of discipling the nations?